Welcome to the Heartbeat Church Podcast. Our vision is for people to live in the image God intended them to be in. For more information visit heartbeatchurch.org.au For our visitors, this is the final part in a series of looking at the key moments of Jesus' final week the Holy Week, and in particular, how these events were for the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. And we've looked at Jesus' triumphal entrance on that Palm Sunday, him coming on that donkey as Jerusalem's king. We looked at him cursing the fig tree and the subsequent cleansing of the temple, which was to foretell the destruction of Jerusalem's temple and the transfer from Jerusalem to worshipping at Jesus' body the true temple. And last week, we looked at Jesus' anointing by Mary in Bethany as a way to prepare for his death and his anointing as the crucified king. And if you remember last week, Jesus said that Mary's actions were to be remembered wherever the gospel was proclaimed because she had done a beautiful thing. She had anointed the ultimate poor man, the righteous sufferer, of the Psalms. And at this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the Mount of Olives, we are given a glimpse at the inner turmoil Jesus Christ underwent in order to fulfill his anointing as the ultimate righteous sufferer. However, that account from the Gospel of Mark, it's not just merely a story of Jesus being overwhelmed by misery and prayer. In this seemingly simple narrative, it weaves a tapestry of Old Testament quotations, allusions, and images. Firstly, Jesus at that moment is the true Adam who overcomes the temptation of the serpent in the garden. Jesus is the greatest son of Isaac. There is no ram in place of him on that altar of sacrifice. Jesus is that righteous sufferer from the book of Psalms. Jesus becomes the embodiment of Israel's exile from Yahweh's presence. Jesus at this moment is a divine warrior overcoming Yahweh's enemies. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the end time or the eschatological suffering foretold in the prophets. And most importantly, Jesus is the one to endure the cup of Yahweh's wrath at the nations and Israel, that who consumed him made them drunk. And it's a confronting read for Mark and all the other gospel authors. Do not shy away from portraying the wrestling Jesus underwent at this moment, the knowledge of his impending pain and suffering that he would endure. And the very, very real temptation to let that cup of suffering pass from him for not proceeding with the anointing that has been laid on him. And the vulnerability of Jesus at this moment was used by critics of Christianity, even from a hundred years beyond this, to say that Jesus was not divine. For compared to Jewish martyrs at that period, Jesus approaches his death as a coward. In the years before Jesus' life, 
There was, a, there was a group of Jewish martyrs who were executed brutally. And their story is told in the Jewish book called Second Maccabees. And in this story, there were seven brothers and their mother who were arrested by the wicked king Antiochus Epiphanes IV, whose very actions were foretold by the prophet Daniel. Antiochus arrests these seven brothers and their mother, and he forces them to eat pork. And the brothers stoutly refuse that they would not break the commands of the Torah by consuming pork. So in response, Antiochus lines up the seven brothers in front of their mother and one by one executes them brutally. You with the use of hot pants, cutting out their tongues, cutting off their limbs and skinning them alive. And as each brother is killed, they encourage each other, do not give in. And the most remarkable part of this account is that when the mother who watches her seven sons dies, the narrator tells us she bravely trusted in Yahweh before her death. Or the rabbi, Abikar, who stood up against the Roman emperor Hadrian, and as he is executed by his torturers, Rabbi Abikar recited the Shema over and over and over. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one. Love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And he recited this over and over and over until he could no more. But when you read this account from Mark chapter 14, we do not find the valiant Jesus standing up to his tormentors who is not afraid of death. He does not calmly walk into the crucifixion. He is about to endure. And if you were going to make up Christianity, you would not portray your hero as a seemingly coward-like person cowering before his death. You would not have him tell his closest followers, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You would not mention the fact that he was praying with such earnest and agony that the sweat from his forehead was dripping like blood onto the ground. Now on a surface level, Jesus' crucifixion and execution appears no different to the seven brothers and their mother or Rabbi Apikar. For many Jews were brutally executed by crucifixion in the first century. But Jesus' death is different. For Jesus is not just merely dying at the hands of the Roman Empire. He is doing something that no Jewish or Christian martyr would ever have to do. Bear the cup of Yahweh's wrath. And Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This cup Jesus referring to is symbolic of Yahweh's wrath and judgment. And when Israel or the nations defied Yahweh's commands and authority, they are forced to drink this cup of wrath. And this cup, its contents is wine. And when the people drink from this cup, they become drunk, helplessly drunk, 
And the effects are horrific. Vomiting, falling over, confusion, staggering. All the impacts of actually being drunk. And like one who is drunk has all their inhibitions lulled and they're not aware of their surroundings. So when the nations are symbolically drunk on Yahweh's cup, they are unaware of the impending destruction that awaits them. And the imagery is grim. From the prophets, we read from Jeremiah 25, from verse 15. This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with wine of my wrath and make all nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. Or Psalm 75, verse 8. In the hand of Yahweh is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. The imagery is crystal clear. This is a terrible ordeal to go through. To drink from Yahweh's cup is a terrible thing. And this is what Jesus Christ is about. To encounter. So it's little wonder why he tells Peter, James, and John, My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. For Jesus Christ was not going to the death of the righteous martyr, he was going to bear Yahweh's wrath. And this moment in Gethsemane, it's a pivotal moment in the life of Jesus Christ, for this is his greatest temptation. The temptation to forego drinking the wine of Yahweh's cup. And this moment of wrestling with God's will is an event that will shape the course of human history forever. In the Garden of Eden, Adam succumbed to the temptation of the serpent by eating from the forbidden fruit. In that single action, human history was changed Forever, as chaos, sin, and death polluted the world. And now the second Adam must once again wrestle with temptation in a garden where being obedient or not will change human history forever once more. In the Old Testament, God was always the instigator of, of testing the Israelites' faith. And the purpose of testing trials and temptations, it was to determine the genuineness of their faith. And this is evident in a number of occasions. In the wilderness wanderings, what does Yahweh provide? He provides manna from heaven. Who will they rely on? Will they rely on Yahweh to provide their daily manna, their daily bread? Or will they go back to Egypt, the place they believed had all the fruit, all the vegetables? When they're in the desert, will they rely on Yahweh to provide water to quench their thirst? Who will they choose, Yahweh or Egypt? Or once the Israelites are in the promised land, they are tested by the other nations and their foreign gods. And this is also another test. Would they remain obedient to Yahweh and his Torah? Or would they follow the path of the other nations and their God? But this moment in the garden, it links in all these images of the Old Testament 
But the most prominent of all these testing and temptations is the moment of Abraham and Isaac. And in a scenario very, very similar to Abraham, Jesus tells his disciples to wait at a distance while a time of testing and worship is complete. However, unlike Abraham's testing, Jesus Christ is Abraham and Isaac rolled into one. And as Isaac, the son, is bound on that altar, and as he is tied up and the knife is about to cut, is about to end his life, Abraham notices the ram in the bush. This time there is no ram. There is no substitute. Jesus is the greater Isaac. Jesus is the greater Abraham, for he is willing to give up his life in order to fulfill that promise given to Abraham, that his children will be a blessing on all the nations. And the temptation of Jesus, it's reflected in Mark's use of the word peripasmos, which none of you are going to remember after this, but peripasmos, it's a very, very interesting Greek word. One commentator, Richard Hicks, he notes that this is the only time this word is used in Mark's gospel. And unlike all the other words for temptation, which kind of mean a burden or a threat, this word for temptation, it means that this, the, temp, the one who's being tempted is in danger from wandering from the path. And this is the implication being painted here. There actually is a good chance that Jesus Christ may deviate from the path that he is meant to be on. This was a real temptation. This really, really could have drifted away. And as Jesus goes off to pray, ultimately that firstborn son with no substitute. He goes into that place of prayer as one of the righteous sufferers from the book of Psalms. And instead of praying in the traditional Jewish fashion with his arms raised up to heaven, Jesus Christ is down on his knees. He is in a time of distress and anguish. And like all the righteous psalmists, when they were going through times of suffering, they would experience bodily changes. They would shake. Their, ba- their bones would rattle. They would start crying. They would be in terror. Their stomachs would be disturbed. The light of their eyes would vanish. They would be downcast. And they would fear death. And the very fact Jesus tells his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's deliberately echoing the Psalms of lament, such as Psalm 6.3. Why my soul is in deep anguish? How long, O Yahweh, how long? Psalm 42.11. My soul, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed? Within me, Psalm 55 from verse 4. My heart is in anguish. Within me, the terrors of death have fallen on me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. Now, one of the things of all of these righteous sufferers in the Psalms, their experience was terrible. Their feelings of anguish were genuine. But what 
all of them prayed at the end what they knew, that there would be vindication. That Yahweh, the just God, would redeem them one day. And most of the Psalms of lament, they follow a very similar pattern. It begins with shame, humiliation, anguish, slander, and betrayal. But ultimately, there is victory. So as Jesus Christ takes this pattern as the righteous, suffering psalmist, he goes in there, knowing that right now there is a terrible, terrible temptation. But there's always that future hope to look forward to. And Jesus would ultimately be aware of this, but it does not remove the horror of this moment. For Jesus prays, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, when one consumed that cup of Yahweh, what happened? They became drunk. They became disoriented. And they were not aware of the impending judgment. And it was only Yahweh's enemies that consumed the contents of this cup. And this is why Jesus is so terrified. But look at the consequences of drinking this wine. One begins to vomit. One falls over. One becomes disorientated. And this request to remove the cup, Jesus is tapping into this language from the prophet Isaiah, particularly Isaiah 51.22, which is a promise to Israel. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that makes you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never, you will never drink it again. I will put it into the hands of your tormentors. Now in its context, Isaiah 51 is a celebration of Yahweh's deliverance. But it's also a reminder in this deliverance, the Israelites faced judgment. They had tasted his cup of wrath. He'd made them drink it. But now that cup had been passed to her enemies. Now, in the context of Isaiah, this cup of wrath that the Israelites drunk was manifested in the Babylonian exile in the year 587 BC. When the armies have to talk about when the Babylonian armies came through and destroyed Jerusalem, and with the destruction of Jerusalem and her temple, and with the exile being over. With the destruction of the temple and the exile being over, this judgment is lifted. And the primary form of judgment in the Old Testament was exile. That's what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. They were exiled from that sacred space when they sinned. It's what happened when Cain killed Abel. He was sent away from the presence of God, further and further east. From the garden. Noah and the flood was another symbol of exile, the Tower of Babel. But every time people sinned, there was this exile, this removal from Yahweh's presence, heading further and further east. That's with the promise given to Abraham, people now can head west, back into the presence of God. 
The Babylonian exile was the most devastating form of exile for the Jews. They lost their temple. They lost their city. But God's judgment was not just for the sake of judgment. When there was judgment, there was always renewal inside. Jesus' life is the embodiment of Israel. From his very birth, throughout the key events of his life, he mirrors the nation of Israel. And now he is about to experience the ultimate exile, separation from God in judgment. This is why he wants the cup to be removed. This is why he wants the cup to be taken from him and put into the hands of of his torment. Jesus Christ does not want to stagger around with the effects of the wine. One commentator, Raymond Brown, states, to ask to escape from the cup he had told James and John to drink confirms how devastating this crisis is to Jesus and adds to the picture of his distress. Earlier, Jesus had challenged James and John, can you drink from this cup that I am about to drink. In fact, earlier night, when he lifted up that Passover um, cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That blood is symbolic of the new covenant Jesus had come to initiate. But also in holding up that cup, it's symbolic of the cup of Yahweh's wrath. Yet despite this, yet despite challenging his closest followers, yet despite holding up a cup, Jesus is tempted to not drink from Yet he prays, not what I want, but what you want. When Jesus is finished praying, and he returns and finds his disciples fast asleep. Now early on, he challenged them to keep watch. Or in Luke's account, not to fall into temptation. Now when Jesus says to keep watch and not fall into temptation, he's talking about something very, very simple. Not the mere ability to keep their eyes open and not fall asleep, but to be alert for the great end-time trials. That involves divine judgment. This watchfulness and resistance to temptation it's connected with spiritual alertness and spiritual peace. Now, one chapter earlier in Mark 13, Jesus had told his disciples about the signs of the end of the world with the destruction of Jerusalem's temple by the Roman armies and the trials and tribulations of disciples' face, the darkening of the celestial bodies and his second and in the description of his second coming, Jesus uses a parable, like a master leaving his house that, le that leaves his servants in charge, who does not know, who do not know when the master will arrive. It may be it may be midnight when the rooster crows, or at dawn. And Jesus concludes this parable. When he comes, do not let him find you sleeping. So Watch. Timothy Gray, a commentator on Mark, argues that the hour in Mark 13 refers to the designated period of suffering and when the destruction of the temple would occur. 
Now there's one big tension in this narrative. Jesus declared, no one, not even the Son, knows the time of the hour. Now how do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile the Son not knowing the hour to come? Only the Father. Well, in this narrative, what do we find Jesus doing? He is praying for the Father that this hour might pass him. That is why Jesus is not certain about the hour in Mark 13. Jesus has prayed for this cup to be removed, to not let this be the hour. Jesus is hoping deep down that this moment in the garden is not the hour of tribulation. He wants to bypass this tribulation and be transported immediately to vindication. But it's clear in his threefold prayer. This is the hour of suffering, which will lead ultimately to the hour of redemption and vindication. In a sense, this is what the Garden of Gethsemane is all about. It's testing for the future signs for when the Son of Man returns. And the disciples fail miserably, not once, not twice, but three times they fall this sets up the beginning of the descent of Jesus' loneliness. He started with 12, then 11, then 8, then 3, and just himself. Not even his Father is with him. The hour Jesus had described had come. And it's now that his return will come. And this struggle for the end of the world begins the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of evil. As Timothy Gray states, in Mark 13, the reader is left wondering when this eschatological or end-time hour will arrive. The conclusion to the Gethsemane scene resolves any curiosity. The betrayal of Jesus marks the beginning of his passion. And also in light of Mark 13, the beginning of the eschatological hour. The hour known to no one except the Father has arrived. And the prophets foretold of this terrible hour that was to come, particularly the prophet Daniel, where he talks about this future tribulation of the saints being handed over into the hands of wicked kings. But the saints would be vindicated. The hour is drawing for the Son of Man. And now Jesus will be handed over to wicked kings in his trial. The point of all this, this moment in Gethsemane, it is the beginning of the hour. It is the beginning of the end. And while this battle imagery is not really clear in Mark's account, in Luke's account, it's more explicit. During Jesus' wilderness temptation, Satan leaves Jesus to tempt him at an opportune time. Now Satan has already entered into the heart of Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself describes this is the hour when darkness reigns. And Luke's depiction of Jesus' prayer. What do we find Jesus doing? Jesus praying so intensely that his sweat is like blood falling to the earth. But as Jesus is pouring his heart, what happens? An angel comes and strengthens him. 
When the Old Testament, the angel of Yahweh led the Israelites into battle. The angel of Yahweh appears before Joshua prior to the battle of Jericho. When the prophet Daniel saw a vision of a great war, an angel of Yahweh comes to strengthen If you remember back to our first session with Jesus' triumphant entrance, it was the fulfillment of Zechariah 14. Jesus was journeying from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem as the divine warrior, Yahweh coming down to defeat his enemies. And the role of this angel, it completes this image of Jesus as the divine warrior. At the completion of his wilderness temptation, angels calm down and minister to Now we often assume that after 40 days, the angels were just merely giving Jesus food to strengthen him. But what they're doing, they're preparing him for the battle. For Jesus returns from the wilderness and goes out and declares, the kingdom of God has come. In other words, the kingdom of darkness is overcome. As Daniel McCartney argues, throughout the Galilean ministry of Jesus, he casts demons out by the Spirit of God, and it is a sign that the kingdom of God has arrived. When Jesus, as a man enthroned by the Spirit, exercises authority over the demons, the proper vice regency or kingship of man under God is restored. Jesus did what Adam should have done, cast the serpent out of the All of that is connected in this moment in Gethsemane. Jesus as the second Adam overcoming temptation. It's no accident that the New Testament describes Satan as the prince of this world, the god of this age, the ruler of the kingdom of the for the first Adam was meant to rule and subdue over the animals. Adam failed this, for he listened to the serpent instead of God. Jesus is now taking back control of this world. And now Jesus has the true Adam. The combination of Abraham and Isaac, the righteous sufferer from the Psalms, has overcome temptation from the destiny of the world. And we see this change in Jesus following his temptation. Jesus is now unwavering before his captives. And he marches up to Golgotha and gives no indication of the struggle he wrestled with in Gethsemane. And now with all of these images, allusions and quotes involved, it brings an entirely new dimension to Jesus' suffering on the cross. But for us as Christians, that has a more practical impact. Mary Tolbert, the commentator, argues that in ancient literature, one technique at a crisis of moment for main characters was for them to give a monologue. It was to reveal the intentions of the main character. And the purpose of this monologue was to pull them back into the world. And the purpose of the gospel authors in revealing Jesus' prayer to his father is that this is a moment of crisis. And for us as readers, we will go through times of temptations and trials. 
That is the battle we face the, against the forces of darkness. And we will be tempted to deviate from this path. And what Jesus overcame in the Garden of Gethsemane means that his followers can now identify with his pain and suffering. Not that we will have to drink from Yahweh's each of us all know knows what it feels like to be tempted to deviate from that path determined by God. Each of us attempted to listen to the authority of the servant and not to the Lord. But more importantly, Jesus' prayer shows us that there are trials and difficulties in life that we are simply not released from, even when we approach it. It's a bold prayer to say, Lord, not my will. But at times we do not understand the will of God. And why there is suffering at times. Why an obvious prayer request to remove a terrible situation is not But what this account of Jesus in the garden teaches us. That by accepting the cup, there is indication. For as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey. Most commentators think that the author of Hebrews is reflecting on not only the time in the wilderness, but the time in the garden, when Jesus learned perfect obedience by overcoming temptation. And what's the end result? Eternal life. New life in God. The Psalms of Laments, the tribulations foretold that there would be victory. This is what happened. Because Jesus overcame that temptation, you and I now have access to eternal salvation. Evil and suffering and the dilemma of unanswered prayer and God's will is difficult for us to process. How is Pantra? Cancer, natural disasters, murder, adultery, or any evil thing part of God's will. And while we simply cannot answer these questions, what we know is Jesus drunk from Yahweh's heart, which means the time of judgment is over and restoration can begin. We now have access to eternal salvation. And when true we are faced with trials and temptations, we can look to Jesus in his great distress. His soul, so sorrowful that it desired death itself. And know that no matter what we face, the end result is vindication. Elizabeth Ackmeyer notes, there is no avoiding the cup of wrath unless God himself changes content of the cup into the new wine of the gospel. Instead of the cup of wrath, we are given the cup of blessing. As Christians, we have drunk from this new wine 
of blessing. Instead of rightfully drinking from that cup of wrath and staggering around drunk, Jesus has done that on the cross. For he consumed the contents of that cup down to its last and since Jesus has done this, that moment before his death, we cry out, it is finished. It's a triumph for salvation has come. For in the restored heavens and the earth, all of our cups of sufferings will be eradicated. All of the temptations that we face, all and every prayer we pray to alleviate the pain and suffering will be answered. For we will dwell in the perfect garden city, the new Jerusalem. And the day and hour when that arrives, nobody knows. But because of what Jesus has done at the ascending and on the cross, we have the full assurance that day will come. Thank you for listening to the Heartbeat Church Podcast. For more information about services, ministries and sermons visit heartbeatchurch.org.au.